So, a closing Dhamma talk. And the title is uh, Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. So here we are, coming to the end of our experiment of uh, a longish period of intensive practice. And soon to be taking yourself, uh, taking your practice out there, wherever out there is for each of you. I think that many of us come into uh, come to the end of a retreat uh, with some thoughts and some feelings that are aren't so dissimilar from those that we enter into retreat with. For many people, there's a feeling of excitement and readiness to go into an extended period of practice. But sometimes just before it's time to enter in, there might be the feeling that, well, I'm just not really quite finished out here yet. I have some more things to do uh, before I go into retreat. And uh, just a few more days, maybe another week, so that I can finish everything that needs to be done. And then I'll be ready to go in. And it seems, uh, actually, that some, some of us have some similar thoughts um, when it's time to come out of retreat. There's maybe certainly an excitement and a readiness uh, to go out into the larger world, but maybe along with this, uh, thoughts such as, well, just a little bit more time here. Uh, Maybe a couple more days. Oh, maybe a couple more weeks, actually. Maybe a month would be good. Then I can be done. I can be. I can finish. I can be all done, and then I'll really be ready to go out of retreat. Go out into that big world out there. And sometimes, um, on either end, the going in and the coming out, there might be some reluctance, maybe some degree of resistance, maybe some fear of the unknown. Maybe fear of the seeming known. And maybe maybe just essentially um, resistance to change. Resistance in relationship to ending one way and entering into another way. And for some of you, maybe there was an urgency to get into retreat. I just can't wait. I really need to have a retreat so ready to go into retreat. And then maybe at the other end, at this end, you can hardly wait to be done. Hardly wait to get out. Get out there to wherever that there is. Back to regular life. So you might check with yourself. uh, Check in with yourself and see if there are any of these kinds of... um, thoughts and feelings, similar conditioned patterns within your own heart, your own mind. Uh, Coming up now at the end of this retreat that maybe you experienced in a similar way or some some similar type of way as you were preparing to come here. Or that maybe you felt at the very onset of the retreat or anywhere along uh, during the retreat as your practice showed up, 
and changed in various ways throughout these two weeks. And of course, we might not feel any anxiety in either direction, entering in or coming out. There's certainly the possibility that might one just might feel a very clean, clear, open readiness and happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next phase and form that life will take. At a retreat that I taught a number of years ago, one person described coming out of retreat. She said she felt like she was descending, like in a plane, descending and landing. said, feeling the force of gravity coming back down to earth. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swicart uh, regarding his experience in outer space. And I'd like to share that with you. <clears throat> you recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with the window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, no uh, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time and you know all those people down there and they are like you, they are you and somehow you represent them. You're up here as a sensing element, that point out on the end and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. The heart, the mind that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. And of course there is a change. And so reflecting on the supports that are available to you as we begin to make this change out of retreat life and back into the larger world. 
One change being the pace of life. At least outwardly, it appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet, we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice of how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us even in the very slow pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice into practice in the world. Reconnecting with the larger world in the day-to-dayness or the moment-to-momentness and the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And we've practiced with, and you have had some taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe you've tasted how unpleasant or how painful it is to try to hold on to things, experiences. As concentration and mindfulness and metta developed over, over these weeks, we've had some glimpse that whatever it is that we experience in the body, the heart, and the mind that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, what, whatever it <coughs> is, can change quite quickly or just simply disappear. These tastes, this understanding has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not to do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices we make, more connection and clarity in our relationship to others more clarity in what's important and appropriate, what's wholesome and really, truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is really a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down a life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is certainly a change from here to there. Life in retreat offers very little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, we eat, you do your yogi job, sleep. You have met with me a few times, um, speaking just a little bit, during that time. You've practiced moving your body 
in authentic and maybe some unique new ways or old familiar ways. And you've learned to see, not just to look, but learn to see through the eye door, which opened up the door for drawing. And you've written words from a growing place of trust and spontaneity and selflessness. And you've spoken words, particularly during the writing practice, with some growing mindful awareness. You've been supported to, within this container of simplicity, you've been supported to mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body, the heart, and the mind, and been invited to sense, to see, and to know. Is the mind, the heart, opening to, connecting with, and receiving what is? Or is it disconnected, separated? With all of this practice and all of this learning bringing us closer to seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, balance, and a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, respect, and really truly care about all of these cycles that go on within our mind, heart, and body. This seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. All of us, really all of us, are so similar, no matter who we are, no matter how we live, no matter our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color. Really, we're all just variations on themes. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, living respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and know this through our intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects our actions and how we think. Seeing into our own heart, our own mind, affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. the possibility of engaging the refuges and the precepts as part of our daily practice. So maybe beginning our day chanting them to ourselves in our daily life 
it can be a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. There's a particular rendition of the precepts that I offered the very first evening of this retreat, seems like a long time ago, that was written by Stephanie Kaza from Green Gulch, the Green Gulch Zen Farm. And I'd like to share it with you just once again, uh, because it really is particularly relevant and, and a good reminder in relationship to the, our daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, as I'm sure also for many of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in a way that really serves, that that supports uh, the process of purification of the heart and the mind, which is intimately related to the development uh, and the process of liberation. And sometimes this happens through the conscious intent to let go of particular habits, particular habits of distraction. And as our practice deepens, there's more and more often a a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to. And it's very, very often around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So, a personal example. There was a time when, uh, when I would get into my car, I would always and automatically turn on the radio. And at some point, I began to notice that it really was quite a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all the time. So I'd begin driving somewhere, 
and my hand would kind of automatically begin to move towards the radio knob, even though I decided not to turn the radio on. (laughs) The force of habit, as you know, is incredibly strong. So I'd very mindfully bring my hand back down again. And at some point along the way of this particular practice, I, uh, I began noticing the thought to turn on the radio. And then there was a choice. There was a choice available to or not to. So looking at another change in this simple and quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days, maybe some big events for you, an especially big day or big event for you in this retreat might have been something as mundane as hotel or personal laundry day. Hotel laundry day for me is a big event. Still. <laughs> for me, uh, in my early days of retreat practice, um, of long intensive retreat practice, when laundry day would come, the personal laundry day would come, uh, it was such a huge addition uh, to my day at times that I would find my, find myself uh, planning for it and thinking about it uh, before I went to sleep at night, that, the night before. And then in the morning it would be the first thing that would come into my mind as soon as I woke up. So I suspect some of you might uh, know just what I'm talking about. <laughs> and how about the big event of the midday meal? Hmm... What will we have for lunch today? And as you're walking for lunch today, you're going thinking, hmm, wonder what we'll have for lunch tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And then the event, maybe for some of you, uh, having a one-on-one practice meeting and maybe rehearsing over and over and over and over again. What am I going to say? Or being anxious about what am I going to talk about? And how about the big day of the first day of the movement practice? Or the first day of seeing drawing with the attitude, I can't draw. I I can't draw at all. So that's a big event, that first day. And how about the first day of writing practice? Maybe a big event for some of you. There's a a short poem by... uh, wandering Japanese Buddhist poet who died around eight or nine years ago, Nanao Sakaki, and he calls this a big day, this poem. Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with the neighbor, the sun goes down, a big day. Many years ago now, Nanao used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation which is about 30 minutes from here, 30 or 40 minutes from here. And he'd show up at Lama with his a small knapsack and a sleeping bag, and he'd stay uh, there for a few days. And they were very always very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with just this and nothing more than he'd arrived with. And he'd often be gone for a few days, and sometimes he'd be gone for uh, a couple of weeks. And then he'd be back again at Lama, at the Lama Foundation. 
a very dear friend of mine um, who was the coordinator uh, up at Lama during those years uh, told me a story of one of these times when Nanao um, had come in for a day or two from the mountains. And he asked her and another friend if they'd like to come out uh, to his camp for dinner in a few days because he was going to be going back out again the next day. My friend said this was really, really special, something that had never been offered before. And so they were very excited about going out to have dinner with Nanao at his camp. So uh, on the appointed uh, day and at the appointed time, my friend and the other invitee uh, found their way to Nanao's camping spot uh, by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there was no food ready and or no food in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything at all with them, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. <laughs> well, my friends said they thought maybe they'd made a mistake, maybe it was the wrong day. But Nanao was very delighted to see them. And he welcomed them heartily. And then he said, okay, now let's go out and find dinner. And my friends said that they walked and they picked and they dug various wild foods. And they came back and they built a fire and they cooked what needed cooking and had an incredibly delicious dinner. She said that they finally then understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or sometimes for weeks at a time, with almost nothing, and come back strong and healthy and very happy. Once someone in a practice meeting spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat as having a really good taste. And we taste it, this really good taste. And we take it with us. And it wends its, way, wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes in big ways. Life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and family life, our community life, work life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relation to the shift to the work that we do, in the way we spend time with a partner, with family, with community members, with friends. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really, truly do have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, every aspect of our life. We have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And, of course, there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we must continue with in our life. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another really beneficial effect on life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity, relationships, and responsibilities. From our experience 
in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we really come to know more clearly when we're off balance in ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat, when we're off balance and when we're in balance. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more and more balance within ourself and within our life as a whole. And we find then that we have more energy and more time available for our life to more and more directly and clearly be our practice. So, simplicity outwardly and inwardly in times of retreat and as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity really being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. So considering our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? It's really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground for this is that we develop, that we integrate a clear and focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all of the dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, and our creative endeavors, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, all part of our practice. And we can find many moments throughout our day that we can just simply, very simply, bring our attention to the simplicity of the sensations of a breath or two, or the open spaciousness of the heart and the mind in almost any circumstance in our daily life. So from this perspective, actually, it's not really so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really, all of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the likes and the dislikes all that we experience in life in retreat and in life outside of retreat, all mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel uh, quite a number of years ago and who had long before I met her uh, lived in a spiritual community in France Uh, that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. She told me a story um, that's really a wonderful mirror and a particular 
uh, of a very particular and difficult life situation being the perfect practice. She said that in this community that she was living, this Gurdjieff community in France that she lived in, there was an old man who was a very difficult, irascible fellow. She said he was quite messy and argumentative. And she said he wouldn't cooperate and wouldn't help with things and basically didn't get along with others in the community. She said that no one in that community liked him very much and that he didn't seem to like very many of the people in the community either. She told us that, or told me, that he, he had tried for quite a long time uh, to stay in the community, but it was quite difficult for him uh, as well as for the other people. So difficult that at some point he finally left and he went to Paris. Uh, and he, he just couldn't bear it anymore. So Gurdjieff, uh, the teacher, followed him to Paris and tried to convince this man to return the, to the community. But the man said, no, he couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. It was just too hard for him to be there. So Gurdjieff, after trying to convince him for a while, finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back, which the man couldn't refuse because he was a very, very poor person. So he did return. When he arrived, this woman told me that everyone in the community was aghast. And she said they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there because they themselves actually had to pay to live in this community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting and he listened to everyone's complaints. And she said then he laughed and he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. (laughs) The conditions of our lives, the people in our lives, are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of our heart and mind, yeast for our awakening yeast for our liberation. There's, there's one teaching among the 84,000 that it said that the Buddha offered where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings. The four divine abidings being metta, unconditional loving-kindness, Karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative joy, and upaka, equanimity. Each of these sons, each of these four sons, because of their particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of these divine abidings in in this teaching from the Buddha. Well, I only have three sons, but uh, they certainly have managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. They still are. Our closest people can often be some of our best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us, and what they give to us, and what they show us. So an example, my two oldest sons, who are 53 now, are identical twins. And they continue to show me a relationship 
that is quite rare. They're each other's best friends. And although when they were little guys, they would fight with each other, of course, as as children do. But over all of these years, they've never talked about each other or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. They've never, really never put each other down, no matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or not done, and no matter what one or the other, how their life is going. And they certainly have diverged in how their life is going. And, very important, they're not each other's keeper. They've really never been disrespectful or codependent with each other. And I think this is really quite a rare friendship. And sometimes I'm quite in awe of it. And always I learn from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And a poem. Uh, it's uh, from a Turkish poet, and I don't know if I pronounced the name properly, Edip Kuntsever, something like that. And the translator uh, is Richard Tillinghast. And this is the poem. It's called Table. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there, He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window. Sound of a bicycle. Sound of a spinning wheel. The softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a focused 
concentrate attention that's well-grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And as some of you have mentioned, and it's true, there is some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these couple of weeks. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this as we connect with the larger world. And it's true there's some change in the depth and sustaining quality of mindfulness from how it is in a retreat such as this as we connect with the larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration, mindfulness, and investigation is not usually totally sustained outside of a retreat setting, the concentration, mindfulness, and investigative capacities that you've developed along with the multi-dimensional facets of understanding that have blossomed for each of you in a retreat like this are really a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. There is a change, yes, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, concentration, clear discernment, and the continuing blossoming of kindness and compassion and wisdom are always, always available to us. Many years ago, at the end of a two-month retreat that I was sitting with my Burmese teacher, Sada Upandita, and two other Burmese monks, I had a conversation with one of the monks. And I asked him if there was any advice that he might give me around taking practice into the whole of my life. And his response was this. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. And you need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. And that was it. That was our whole conversation, which I never forgot. I thought it was really good advice. In terms of integrating your practice, of a relaxed and focused mindful attention and investigation more and more fully into your life, you might consider incorporating some of the movement practices and setting up some specific time for seeing drawing and writing into your weekly schedule. And there are some other particular ways that I and others and um, probably some of you as well, have found to be very helpful in bringing a simple yet direct and immediate focused mindful attention into our daily life. One suggestion that comes from a Dharma teacher friend is that at the end of each hour of the day, take one or two minutes to just stop and be still and simply connect with breath in the nostrils or the belly or in th- and out through the whole body. So a couple of breaths. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very directly focused, mindful time with each of these moments actually having an effect 
on the many moments that follow. Another way to carry your practice into your daily life is to remember at moments during the day to touch in to the physical sensations, your physical sensations, through contact, such as the feet on the ground, your bottom touching a chair, or touching a cushion or the ground, hands touching each other, very simple. Mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened every single time we do this. I think really the only thing that's hard about doing these very brief meditation sessions is to remember to do them. I know some people who put uh, little notes for themselves uh, around their home or in their workplace to remind them to check in. So maybe a note on the bathroom mirror. Breathe. Or, I am here. Maybe a little stand-up note on your desk at home or at work. Still breathing. (laughs) Or, metta, now. Some years ago, when I was the resident teacher at IMS for staff, there was a fellow on staff in those years who worked in the front office. And he had a small stand-up note on his desk that said, buttocks. (laughs) Why? (laughs) First of all, he had a really good sense of humor, but there was a reason for it. It was to remind him to bring his attention to the touch points of his bottom touching the chair. And uh, about a year ago, when I was, or maybe it was a couple years ago, recently anyway, the, uh, I was having a meeting with the former director of the Forest Refuge, which is the, the long-term practice center at the Insight Meditation Society, where I, I teach regularly at the Forest Refuge. And we were having a meeting, and all of a sudden, a mindfulness bell sounded. And Eric was his name, the director at that time, stopped. We stopped talking. He stopped talking, so I stopped talking. And we sat quietly, silently, for just a moment or two. And then we went on with our meeting. And he said, I said, wow, uh, that's pretty neat, Eric. He programs his, or he programmed his computer. Every 45 minutes, it rang a mindfulness bell. And no matter what he was doing with himself or somebody else in the office, everybody stopped. He stopped. Breathe. Pay attention. And then go on. I thought that was brilliant. Walking meditation can be uh, a very important and very powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect and strengthen our presence through concentration and mindfulness. And of course, many of us walk uh, at least a few miles just going from place to place uh, on, a, on a daily basis or certainly uh, through a week. And we can make some of this walking uh, time a a practice, specifically intending it to be practice. When I lived at IMS as the resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space in those years was up on the second floor of the main building. And because I did many practice meetings with staff and had lots and lots of other meetings, I didn't have very much time during the day or hardly any time ever to do walking meditation. So I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs, 
uh, I would make that my walking practice. And once I decided that, I did that um, quite often, most days. And at one point, a staff member came in for a practice meeting with me, and he was obviously uh, quite agitated. And with some difficulty, he told me that he was very upset because he said I was ignoring him. He said he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. And he was wondering if I was angry with him. And I told him that um, going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time. And I certainly hadn't abandoned him, and I definitely was not angry with him. It was just that I was practicing as deeply and uh, as I possibly could going up and down the stairs. Well, as soon as I said that, he completely changed his attitude, and he said he was happy for me, and he told me he thought it was a great idea. People might not always understand what you're up to when you integrate your practice into your life in small ways. Do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And, as many or maybe all of you know, it's very important to connect with others who practice. And we certainly can see and feel the benefit of this, as, uh, as numbers of you have mentioned, in a retreat setting. If you're not connected, at least sometimes with a group, even just a group of two or three, to sit with once in a while, check and see if there's a sitting group in your area, and if there isn't one, start one. Which might mean just asking even just one or two other people uh, you know who meditate, or maybe one or two other people who might be interested in learning to meditate to meet together uh, once a week or maybe every other week. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, one of his chief disciples, spoke about the tremendous importance of the connection with spiritual friends. And the Venerable Ananda, in speaking to the Buddha, said this, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda by saying, Don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as possible be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the great arts in life maybe perhaps the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go out into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, and joy increases. It's inevitable that peace increases, that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And one more Nanao Sakaki poem. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. 
If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) And I would add, if you have time to... or in the time that you have, make time to let the body move. Make time for seeing drawing. And make time for writing. And take time to sit, you happy, lucky idiots. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd like to end the talk this evening with a poem from the Native American poet Joy Harjo. She calls this eagle poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in knowing we are made of all this and breathe knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. 